This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome, welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast. Explore the mind of MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner, Brett Boone, as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. Now, now, up to to bat, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast. I'm Brett Boone, and today on the program, I'm joined by a five-time All-Star and a Kansas City Royals Hall of Famer, Mike Sweeney. Welcome to the program. Hey, Booney, it's uh, what a joy to be on your show. I've, I've seen you've had some pretty incredible guests on your podcast, so it's a, it's an honor to be on on your podcast and be a teammate with you once again. I think we were only teammates for about three days, uh, maybe more. <laughs> But especially in the 01 All-Star Game, that's something I'll never forget, um, getting to share the All-Star field with you. Um, we both were blessed to wear number 29. And, um, yeah, great to, great to call you a friend, a brother, and uh, now to be on your podcast. I remember that All-Star. You know what I remember about that All-Star Game? We were hitting BP, and I said, sweet, give me, give me that bat. And me- remember how f- remember how far we were hitting balls at that. Almost, it's almost out of almost out of Safeco Field that day. Right that now, was- now T-Mobile. We got to be we got to be correct with the new name. But That's yeah, right. I, I I I have vivid memories. I remember grabbing a Mike Sweeney bat, seeing what he swung, and hitting <laughs> balls. And, and I and I was telling you guys, I said it normally doesn't go this far. These balls have something in them. But yeah, that was a lot of we, fun. That was a great day, and I think you were hitting third in the uh, the game that night. And, um, yeah, it's great to call you a friend and teammate, man, and, and great to be on your show, Booney. You as well. You as well. Um, give me a good story about Bob Boone that I, oh. wouldn't, I wouldn't know. Now, you know, I've, I've been around <laughs> Pops a long time, never managed uh, me personally. I've played against him as a manager a lot. He was your first big league manager. I, I, need, I need to know some, some stuff about that I wouldn't know. Okay, so first of all, Growing up in Southern California, you know, Pops, your dad had a Hall of Fame career, played a lot with the Phillies, but I remember him playing a lot with the Angels. I go out and watch him. I tried to emulate my game after him. I wore number eight. That's that's what number I wore in high school because your dad was my favorite uh, catcher in the major leagues. I um, I had I literally had his poster hanging in my bedroom uh, on my bedroom wall. I can still picture the red thumbtacks and the blue ones on the bottom because angels red and angels blue. And I wanted to be like number eight. I wanted to be like Bob Boone. And uh, when I got called up to the major leagues in 1995, one of my childhood heroes is now my manager. And um, probably one of the one of the stories that I remember best is, you know, number one, I'm trying to catch like your dad and I couldn't. Um, thankfully I could run better than your dad <laughs> and, and thankfully I could hit better than your dad, but I'll never forget one of our close friends that we share a mutual friendship with Jamie Moyer. Okay. It's 1990. I didn't hit a home run my first year cause your dad only gave me four at bats the whole month of September. So that's a, I got a September call up at 95 pops. Uh, they were fighting to try to get into the playoffs. So I only got four at bats my first 
call up. But the next year, we're playing in the Kingdom. I know you probably love hitting in that place, but uh, old Seattle Kingdom and facing a, Jamie Moyer, your old teammate and, and great friend. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I'm facing Jamie Moyer. Like, this is a, this is a big deal. And it's a one-two count. I can remember it like it was yesterday. Jamie tried to throw me a back foot curveball. And as it was coming towards my back foot, I barreled it up. And it went about, I don't know, 12 rows up in left field. And as I hit it, I go, man, I came out of the box thinking, I hit my first major league home run. It's against the legend in Jamie Moyer. And my hero is my manager and sitting about 25 feet behind me in the first base dugout at the Kingdom. And as, as this, as all these emotions are going through my head, and Booney, you know better is better than I do. You hit more home runs than I did. The, the best feeling in baseball, besides a win and winning a World Series, is the half second after you barrel a ball up and you know that there's no ballpark in America that's going to hold it, and you're going, that's a home run. So that, that moment was ruined by my childhood hero, your father, Bob Boone, in the, in the dugout going, run, run. <laughs> And uh, I came in the dugout. He gave me a high five. And I remember I was thinking to myself, hey, Booney, look, I mean, yeah, you, you're my hero, but uh, I know you're yelling at me to run. And I always played the game hard. I played the game the right way. But I'm like, Booney, I saw you play for 10 years and you never hit a ball 15 rows up. <laughs> <laughs> that, is, that is true. I'll tell you what, Swain, now, nowadays, it, it, it would be no big deal if you don't run. It, it was it was different back then, especially when you hit your especially when you hit your first one. Did did you and Pops because uh, for those of you listening to the Boone podcast, other Mike came up as a catcher. Um, so did you and Dad ever talk catching? You you said you tried to emulate him uh, behind the dish. He he was very unique in how he caught. You know, as as time goes on, as time went on, because us middle infielders, we really never really studied or, or watched the catching position as time's gone, as time has gone on for me, uh, I've been a real fan of the catcher and how important of a position it is. It, not so much the the X's and O's, but just the, the handling of a staff, uh, that relationship you have with each and every pitcher on that staff. I've, I've seen a lot now and I realize how important it is to the game. Did you ever talk catching with dad? Uh, Booney, uh, one of one of my greatest memories um, after I played for your pops, I got to play for the great Bob Boone. I got to go to your childhood home up in, I think it was Anaheim Hills. And uh, I got to sit in the garage on a milk crate with your dad. And we got to take out some old VHS tapes and plug them into the VHS little uh, VCR. And uh, there's a TV in your garage. And we I sat and it was like, I mean, I felt like I was with, um, you know, John the Baptist. I, I felt like I was with one of the greatest philosophers of all time. And I was chewing on and hanging on every word he gave to me. And he was talking everything from pitch calling to how to, how to block properly. And the sign of a great catcher is to not be noticed. You should block every ball. You should care for your pitcher, get him through the game. You need to get a win. And at the end of the game, you take all blame and you accept no praise. And I remember just thinking, man, this guy's he's a genius. That's why he was one of the, what, greatest two I think he was second on the all-time list in games caught in major league history and I remember sitting in that garage not wanting to leave it was an off-season day and I taught catching with your dad uh, probably more than you ever did because <laughs> I know you were you were a big power hitting second baseman shortstop at SC and I was a scrapper catcher but I'll, I'll tell you this one of the funniest things that I had heard 
your dad and, you know, guys like Gene Mock, Jamie Quirk, um, George Brett were some of his contemporaries and coaches. And uh, the rumor is, is some people asked your dad, hey, Booney, or yeah, you, you, he was the original Boone. Well, he's, your grandpa probably he, was. Yeah, they're the original. I'm, I'm like, <laughs> the, you know, third fiddle. Third generation Boone. Right. And, and they asked your dad, hey, Booney, uh, you got this young hotshot catcher named Mike Sweeney. What kind of catcher is he? And your dad's response was, he could sure hit. <laughs> no, no, Booney, what yeah, kind of catcher uh, is he? No, like I, I know. Said, he, he could sure hit. <laughs> he could hurt. Right, he's trying to avoid the catching question. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. That leads me to my next because for those out there listening, uh, Mike Sweet, one of the most underrated hitters of my time. I mean, it maybe it had something to do with Kansas City, but some years you had for, you know, 99 to 05. I mean, I remember watching you and thinking, this guy can flat out hit. You had to move, and, and fans hear about it a lot, but I want to hear it from a guy that had to make that move. A great teammate of mine, a uh, really good friend, is Edgar Martinez. He had to make the move from third base to DH. We've had Paul Molitor, uh, Jason Giambi, uh, Jim Tomey. I've had them all on the podcast, all DHs. I don't know if I could have done it, Swain. I mean, as as a second baseman, I had, and I, and I say this all the time, but Hitting is so hard, especially at that level. It was a, it was almost like a, an escape for me because I knew I was even on my best years. I was going to have times where I just wasn't hitting. If I wasn't hitting, I knew my glove was sitting at the end of the dugout and I could go take a hit away from somebody else. And I had that in my brain, and it kept me sane because you have those times where you're where you're zero for four and three punch outs and and. If you can turn a big double play, maybe you help win the game that day. It gave me a little bit of peace of mind when I wasn't hitting. I don't know if I could have been a DH. I talked to Edgar, you know, when I was playing with Edgar, one of the greatest DHs of our of our generation. And I just, I used to ask him, I said, how do you do it? And he said, you know, at the beginning it was hard and and I just got into a ritual. And and I would see him in between at bats. He'd, he'd do one thing. First of all, he'd be in the video room. Then he'd be on the bike and then keeping himself occupied and into the game. What what was the toughest transition for you? Uh, was it easy or was it, was it tough? Well, going back to my transition from catcher to non-catcher, I thought my career was over, Booney. I thought, man, this is my bread and butter. I won. I wanted to wear number eight. I wanted to be like Bob Boone. And when they told me in Kansas City, you're never going to catch again, it, it crushed me. I thought, man, I'm going to have to head back to Southern California and start sacking groceries because if I can't catch, I can't play. And ironically, about this time of the year in 1999, Booney, 
you you played against uh, Jeff King, right? Yes. Uh, first baseman. Pittsburgh Pirates. Pittsburgh Pirates. Yeah. On the anniversary of his 10th year in the major leagues of service time, we're teammates in Kansas City. It's the end of April. I'm the third catcher on the team. DH in a little bit, pinch hitting here and there. And I was hitting about 350. And Jeff King comes in and says, you know what? I'm done. I got a, I got a ranch that I bought from Hank Williams Jr. in Montana. My wife and I have seven kids. And uh, you know what? I'm done. I'm done playing ball. And uh, you talked about Jason Giambi, his little brother, Jeremy, and I were teammates. Right. And uh, God rest his soul. But uh, the, the man that preceded your father um, in, in managing the Kansas City Royals, Tony Muser, came up and said, hey, Sweens, look, um, you don't have a first baseman anymore. And I was wondering, we're thinking about platooning you and Jeremy Giambi at first base. And I was wondering if you can play some first base. Have you played much first base? I said, yeah, Skip, I played a ton of first base. You know, I'm good over there. I can handle myself. He said, all right, we'll be out there tomorrow at one o'clock. You, you and you and Giambi are going to be working with Richie Dower and working on some, some stuff at first base. So I'm like, all right, man, I can get off the bench. I can get, I can quit being the 25th player on the team. Um, and as Jeff King was rolling out of the Royals locker room with his duffel bag, I said, hey, Kinger, are you really going to retire? Are you really going back to Hank William Jr.'s ranch in Montana? <laughs> and he said, yeah, why? I said, well, if you're going to retire, you probably don't need that first baseman's glove, right? And he goes, no, I'm, I hate baseball. I'm never going to play again. I said, do you mind if I use your glove? Because they want me to play first base tomorrow. And I haven't played it since I was 13 years old in Pony League. So uh, so I got to come up the next day. I'm, I'm literally using Kinger's glove the next day. And I got to transition into playing some first base and DHing. But um, to get to your point and your question, it was a transition. But the, the thing that I went back to, you, you mentioned it, Booney. The most important thing was winning a ball game. And if you're over four, okay, you, you know what? You were going to steal some hits and you stole a ton at second base. But for me, whether I was playing first base or DH, and I knew that my bat in that lineup was going to help us win games. And if it, if it wasn't my bat, it was my leadership. And I could kind of propel my teammates to believe in themselves and help them play beyond their ceiling. So, yeah, uh, it, it definitely was a, an adjustment going from a catcher who was, you know, in the middle of the action all the time and trying to guide a pitching staff and throw a runner out and block a ball and massage the pitcher into thinking that he's good enough to get through an inning um, to now all I can do is play first base once in a while and DH, but my bat was the thing that carried me. And it really did. Um, the hitting side of it, I mean, I, I look at here in 99, he hit 322. 2000 hit 333 you hit 304 the following year you hit 340 in 02 you're a five you're a five-time all-star and like i said i used to watch you hit and 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 i don't say this lightly i mean i i looked at you like i looked at manny ramirez and -hmm. i said this guy hits like him he really does and i think that the average right there it shows up that that i wasn't far off and i'm going he really is just an astute hitter. He studies the, I, I want to talk to you about hitting in your philosophy. Did you take it from a catching standpoint, what you were thinking as a catcher, what you're going to throw? Cause later in my career, when I, when I had all most of my offensive success, I really had a plan when I went to the plate, I completely changed. And as a young player, I was a uh, house on fire and it was just hit, 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 swing hard. And, and as I got a little bit older, I still swung hard. <laughs> but I really had an approach when I left that on deck circle. 
And, and I stuck yep. with my approach because I was told if you stick with that approach and you don't waver over 162 games, you're going to have the best outcome as, as you could. Sometimes we've got to fight, fight ourselves because we do have a plan going into each and every at bat. Uh, but yep. that discipline to stay with the plan really helped me uh, the second half of my career from the offensive side of the game. I mean, I'd go up there, and, and it would depend for me, Swain, who was catching. And I want to see how, how much you hit like I did. It depended yep. who was catching, but I'd take everything into consideration. What have I done this series? What is that bull? Who, who might be coming into the game? What's the, what's the situation of the game? Who's on deck? Is there a base open? Is there not a base open? What did I do last time against this hitter? The, all these things go into a formula of how I'm going to approach this particular at bat. And what I think you as the catcher are going to put down with those five fingers. Which finger are you going to put down? Am I right? Yeah. Am I wrong? That's a chess match that the player has with the pitcher and the catcher. The hitter is what I'm trying to say. Uh, yep. That's how I approach it. I want to talk about you and and how you approach hitting and all the success you had as a hitter. Well, great, great, Booney. Well, the main thing for me was when I stepped into that box, um, I wanted to try to turn off my mind and turn on my eyes uh, as much as I could. So if you ask any good hitter, Booney, I, I, I would ask you, when you were in the zone, when you're hitting balls 18 rows up to right center field and it was time after time after time again, um, what were you thinking? Uh, nothing. When I was locked in the zone, the ball was coming in like a beach ball. It was slow motion. But what were you, were you thinking of the box? On a scale of 1 to 10, how much were you thinking? Probably a 0 or 1? Okay, how, much, how, about, how well were you seeing the ball? Exceptionally well. So one thing that Dr. Bill Harrison up in Laguna Beach taught me is you can't be cerebral and you can't be visual at the same time. So one thing I tried to do is when I got in the box, all I wanted to do, my MO, was see the ball, slow it down, and either knock the, try to split the seams on the ball, make the ball explode, or take the ball properly. But – before I stepped in that box, Boney, you, you had your litany of list of, of the things that factored into your algorithm before you jumped in the box. And I was the same way. You know, goes goes back to the scouting report. What's this guy do against power hitting right-handed hitters? Uh, what's his breakdown on fastball, slider, changeup? Does he like to pitch inside or is he a guy that throws the ball away? And I would take that scouting report and it became a chess match so that at times I felt that I was playing chess and the pitcher was playing checkers. Like I knew that he was going to, what he was going to throw before he threw it. I would study video relentlessly, get to the field at noon and see, you know, there were many guys, Booney, you, I remember talking to you. Um, you could read a pitcher's hand and know by the angle of his glove or the, the width of his glove, how he opened it, or maybe it was the, his tongue, what pitch he was throwing. Sometimes the catcher would uh, sh show it. I remember playing against A-Rod. And when he was at shortstop, he'd, he'd look in at the sign from the catcher. And if it was an off-speed pitch, as the pitcher was coming set, A-Rod would take two steps to his right. So I'm like, perfect, off-speed pitch. Um, if it was a fastball, he would stay still. So there are little intricacies that you take into your algorithm uh, of, of how you prepare to, to battle that pitcher, how he pitched you last at bat, how he faced you last game, success that you've had against him. So, yeah, but the one thing that I – on was I'm not going to help my team if I strike out. I think the most strikeouts I had in a year was 65, and that was in over 700 plate appearances. So my approach was, man, from the first pitch on, I wanted to barrel something up and hammer it hard. And like you, Booney, my approach was prepare to hit the fastball, 
be on time to hit the fastball to center field, the right center field gap, every single pitch, and then adjust. So I, I, was, I would like to ask you before you get to your next question, Booney, I know I'm your guest here. Yes, you are, Swain. <laughs> How the heck did you hit the ball so far to the opposite field? I mean, you were hitting <laughs> the ball to the right center like a left-handed pole hitter. Well, and I, I, I always admired that approach on you. I used to laugh at, uh, you know, you mentioned Alex. Um, Alex, I mean, he would get to second base, and he'd ask me just that question. Now, we all know Alex Rodriguez. I mean, he almost has 700 homers. He could hit yeah. balls where I was hitting them to right center <laughs> out on his front foot. But he would ask me that question, Booty, how, how do you do it? I was like, shut up, Alex. You can do it. You know how I do it. Um, you know, for me, Mike, I, especially later in my career, obviously I wasn't the tallest guy out there. So I had to find a way to create leverage. And, and I stood as straight up and down as I could. A lot of guys have the the luxury of spreading out. I wish I could spread out because I felt like I had more control of my body from a spread out stance, but I'm going to give up a lot of power that way. I just had to catch the ball far back in, in the zone as far back as I could. And uh, I, I just started with a philosophy of, I eliminated the inside part of the plate because I thought there's not enough pitchers out there that can pitch inside effectively. They, they might yep. throw a strike. They might hit the inside corner. That's not where we do our damage anyway. You know, on the outside yep. corner, the inside corner, where we do our damage usually is we're looking one place and then pitcher makes a mistake out over the plate. Am I right? I mean, most yeah, home right. runs, most home runs aren't great pitchers pitches. Yes. Once in a while you hit a pitcher's pitch out, but yep. statistically you're going to hit the mistakes. I just thought middle of the field and I'm going to hit a ball. I, I always pictured there was a mountain in center field, center, right center field. And I'm going to hit this ball, not over the mountain, but through that mountain. And yep. it just seemed that the, the, the farther back I let that ball get, I had to be on time at my height, five ten on a good day. I had to do everything <laughs> perfect. I couldn't go get that pitch. That's going to be a lazy yep. fly ball to right field. I've got to hit it in the back, back, back of my stand. That's the only way I was going to able to have the power the other way. So that's what I used to think. I went in doubt for me. That's it was pretty simple. I want to pitch middle away. Even if I was facing an Al lighter, remember Al yep. lighter with that cutter. cutter. Cutters in, gonna, cutter it, in. It's almost like he could step off the mound, say, Hey Booney, I'm throwing you a cutter <laughs> inside every pitch. Well, I did that as a young player and I was going to show him, you know, my ego took over and I'm thinking, yep. I'm going to get that cutter. Now I'd rip one foul off the turf. Off the yep. off the the tarp down the left field line. Tarp down way the left to, field line. Right, way way to go! You really hit that one hard. You showed him. <laughs> Later in my career, I, I really started getting away from that, and saying I am completely eliminating the inside. I don't want that pitch. If he can paint me with three fastballs in the inside corner, I'll tip my hat and I'll I'll, I'll walk away. I don't want it. I refuse to look at it. Look for it. No matter how much damage I've done on the outside of the plate, I will not look in. If he's going to pitch me in, I'm going to take it in off the plate for a ball or wait for him to try to come in and leave it out over the plate. So that was kind of my my philosophy later in my career. And and I like I said, I formulated a plan and I stuck with it. But but just letting that ball get deep. And I know indeed. we hear it in the hitting hitting worlds all the time. Let the ball travel. No, no, it wasn't that. It was as simple as in a flip drill before before uh, before a game. I never would hit a ball to the pull side ever because I want to let that ball no matter where I, I got to the point, And I don't know if uh, this is, this is interesting to me. I, 
when asked when you're in the zone, what could you could do? And this is what I could do when I was at my best. I could take a 95 mile an hour fastball on the black inside and I could barrel it and hit a double down the right field line. And I knew, I knew if I could do that, my swing was perfect and there was no way to get me out. Now that didn't happen all the time. You know, I was vulnerable (laughs) more than I wasn't, but, but that, that was my thought. I can take any pitch on the plate, hit it through the middle of the field, barrel it up because, because what do, what do average hitters do? They take the fastball inside. What do they do? They roll over it and they hit a ground ball yep. shortstop. If I could yep. take that pitch and keep it through the middle of the field, I knew my bat was on the right plane, but I knew in order to do that, to get the barrel to it, I needed to let that ball get deep in the hitting zone. I uh, that's, love it. It's kind of a long winded answer, but there it is. No, it's perfect. There we go. Two strike approach. You talked about, you didn't punch out much. I think you punched out, uh, 613 times in your entire career and you walked 522 times. There's not too many people. Well, I'd say nowadays there's nobody that has a ratio even close to that. If you ever, you know, Tony Gwynn probably had yep. more, more walks than punch outs, but that's, that's Tony Gwynn. That's one in a million, especially right. in today's, today's generation. What did you do with two strikes? I think I saw a YouTube video and you talking about two strike approach. I had a two strike yep. approach. And it was a little bit goofy. I'd changed my stance for that, but I was giving up and I was battling. I was not going to let that umpire call strike three on me. I want to hear about Mike Sweeney's two-strike approach. Yeah, so, Boney, when I was a kid, I don't know if you ever hit at the Home Run Park down on Beach Boulevard and, and right by Knott's Berry Farm, but my godfather owned this little batting cage. And um, I used to go there as a kid. My my dad used to give hitting lessons there. And, and I used to work on hitting, hitting, hitting. And once in a while, my dad would say as a young boy, hey, Mike, let's go to the 90 mile an hour machine. And let's I'm, I'm 10 years old. And he said, let's let's practice getting the bat on the ball. And he said, put your bat on your shoulder, spread your feet out a little bit and just work on a little load with your hands and just explode to the ball. And uh, I remember at 10 years old hitting the 90 mile an hour machine, with my pops. And then that kind of evolved into, hey, when you get two strikes, go to that approach where it doesn't matter if the guy's throwing 100. I know I could go from A to B on you know, 100. My last at bat in the big leagues was against Aroldis Chapman throwing 103 miles an hour. And I hit a line drive base hit into left field at, at 37 years old. So it was years and years of practice in that, Booney. And um, I'll tell you, I had a traditional upright stance like you. Uh, my first four or five years in the big leagues. And then with two strikes, though, I would spread out. And I'd bring my bat, you know, in a, in a load position, just kind of more spread out. I'd pick up my front heel as my load. And I was just thinking, just load early and just drop barrel, drop barrel and ball. And uh, I remember in 1999, I had a hitting coach named Lamar Johnson. Lamar Johnson came up to me, Boney. It's the middle of May, so we're about six weeks into the season. And Lamar says, hey, Sweens, look at, I looked up at the scoreboard and you're hitting 365. And I go, wow. He says, what do you think you're hitting – with less than two strikes. What's your batting average with no strikes or one strike? And I said, well, shoot, probably 400. He says, no, you're hitting 214. He said, what do you think you're hitting with two strikes? I said, I don't know. He said, you're hitting 465 with two strikes. And he said, what I'd like to see you do is you eliminate all the movement that you have. You have an upright stance. I had longer levers than you. I have um, really, really long arms and when I was upright, it, it caused me to drift a little bit into the, into the ball and towards the pitcher, and I'd tie myself up. But with two strikes, I would use my legs as a way to stop me 
and I would let my barrel work for me. So he says, Sweens, what, what I'd like to propose is that with, when you step in the box, go to your two-strike approach from pitch one. And I said, Booney, Lamar, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up all my power. He says, you ain't going to give up your power. Trust me. So I'll never forget. I come up. It's bases loaded. It's the um, first inning. We're in Jacobs Field. I think they've changed the name now. We're playing against the Indians. Yeah, they changed that name too. And, uh, and I'm coming up. It's bases loaded. I'm hitting cleanup. And the pitcher, I think it was, it may have been Bartolo Colon, threw me a nasty 2-1 slider on the black. And if I'm standing upright, there's no doubt in my mind, I roll over that, hit a weak ground ball to shortstop, and it's a double play. But instead, I stayed behind the ball, and I hit a three-run double off the top of the fence. And I'll never forget it, Booney. I look in the dugout, and I see Lamar Johnson like this. And I said, all right, man, I trust you. I'm going to go with this. So from that day forward, the next 11, 12 years of my career, I would just kind of have a wider approach. I'd pick up my heel as a load. And I would just drop head on the ball. And, with, and that, my two-strike approach became my all-the-time approach. But with two strikes especially, even with that modified wide approach, I would shrink the field. So my pull ball was going to be from the shortstop over um, to the right field line. So I would sacrifice a little bit. But so many times, Booney, you said it earlier, when you're going good, sometimes I'd hit a home run on a ball to right center field with two strikes. And I go, man, that ball must have been – he must have left it right down the middle. And I go back and watch the video, and it was a fastball in on the black. But I eliminated the movement, and I just simply got barrel on ball, and I put myself in a strong position by letting the ball travel. But I, I always went back to the philosophy, I'm not going to help my teammates win and help the team if I strike out. So with two strikes, I kind of shortened up and said, hey, I'm going to get barrel on ball. And thankfully, Booney, you and I were strong enough, even with that two-strike approach, you barrel something up, it could still leave the ballpark. Yeah, it's interesting. You talk about just just picking your picking your heel up and setting it down. There's so many, especially today's game. There's so many, uh, you know, the leg kicks and and people actually in in our time, leg kicks were kind of how you hit. You know, I I had a a decent sized leg kick. Some I didn't like it because it would screw up my timing. That's just yeah. naturally how my body acted. And I'd always want to, with two strikes, I would tame that down. And and now I, you know, I felt like I my foot never left the ground, but I'd look at the replay and that was just, yeah. it was a smaller leg kick that I normally have. Leg kicks are yeah. great. And when they're on time, they are powerful. That's uh, right. But I, re I remember talking to Josh Donaldson a few years back and he was asking me about, it. I said, Josh, that leg kick gives you a lot of power, but it's a timing problem. And at the big league level, you're not going to be able to keep that on a daily, but if you're going to have the leg kick, you need to be able to recognize that the timing's not there and not go over 20. You need to recognize it when you're over six. Now we go to the simulator leg kick. When we get our timing back now, go to that leg kick again. Yep. Uh, and we had great conversations about that. Keep it as simple as possible. I think if I were able to do what you did and just lift my heel up and set it down, I, I used to sit there and I'd, I'd watch other hitters. And I go, wish I could do that. You know, Edgar, <laughs> Edgar's, Edgar's hands, he, he would load, but his hands didn't have a ton of, they didn't drop. Mine dropped. And I was like, man, I, I wish I could do that. And I wish I could do this. We're all so different, but you know, if we could pick and choose each quality from hit our favorite hitters, <laughs> man, what, what, what a hitter. We'd all we'd be, be good. And how easy the game would be. <laughs> yeah. Matter of fact, who are some of your favorite guys uh, during your time in the big leagues that you just sit around and you love to watch them hit? Could be BP, could be the game. 
Yeah. So when I first started in the big leagues, uh, your dad was, you know, my, my coach, uh, my manager, but I, I always loved watching some of the veterans, you know, the Gary Gaetti's, um, the Greg Gagne's, Wally Joyner's. I watched him play as a teammate of your dad's in Anaheim. And then when I, when I came over to um, Oakland, um, you know, getting, getting to play with the Eric Chavez's, the Jack Cuss, I always, I always was drawn to the power guys. And then when I came to Seattle, I, I know you played a lot longer than I did. But I was teammates with with Junior and Ichiro and Beltre and getting to play with those three Hall of Famers, getting to watch them swing. Gosh, it was incredible. You talked about if you can pick and choose. I mean, if I had Ichiro's hand-eye coordination and ability to barrel up balls, if I had Beltre's just tenacity and ability to fight through injuries to play. I mean, I saw Beltre take a ground ball in between the legs. He ruptured a testicle. And he was out there wiping away tears at third base and said, you ain't going to take me off the field. That guy, when he goes in the Hall of Fame, we'll probably both be there. But he was just so mentally tough and physically just a, an incredible ball player. And then Griffey Jr., the kid, to see that pretty left-handed swing. Um, I'll tell you a funny story, Booney, because I think you'll appreciate this. You were a lot like me. You were pretty, you were pretty diligent about your preparation to get ready for a game. And then, you know, when you go out and hit 38 or 40 homers and you – driving 130 runs, people think, oh, it's just because you work hard and you're, you know, you, you get in the gym and you, you're in the cage a lot. No, it's preparation. It's preparation. I'll never forget when I was with Seattle. Um, it's opening day. We're, uh, we're flying to Minnesota and our hitting coach is walking down the, the center aisle of our charter jet. And he's got this big binder and he's walking by and talking to Russell Branion and he's talking to Adrian Beltre and Ichiro and me and he's going through the whole the whole lineup and he's asking guys what do you want to know to hit tomorrow night against the minnesota twins what do you want to know what information do you want and each guy had different things i i was a guy that said i want to know the pitcher's uh, velocity on his fastball i want to know percentages of his pitches what what percentage he throws fastball slider what percentage and what percentage he throws change up or whatever his third or fourth pitch is and then where he likes to traditionally throw the ball his is, is he outside guy is he inside is he up and i would just kind of go with that but i got to he got to junior so you know junior when we played with him he always sat on row 24 24a was his seat he's number he's the kid and i i was always you know sitting next to him on 24d and i hear this booney it's the most incredible thing i've ever heard in my life uh alan cockrell was our hitting coach i remember well, ace you remember Alan Ace? Well, Ace, uh, you want to know what I want when I hit? Well, I figure this, Ace. Every pitcher is going to have a fastball. He might cut it. He might sink it. He might throw a four seamer. Um, every pitcher is going to have a breaking ball. Might be a curveball. Might be a slider. Might be a sweeper. And uh, every pitcher is going to have a changeup. Might be a fork ball. Might be the Trevor Hoffman ball. Might be a circle change. Might be a split. So he said, Ace. T-baller, he goes, five-year-olds five hit balls off the tee. That's for T-ballers. Little girls play softball, underhand toss. And he says, so um, what do I need? He says, uh, when we hit in the cage, you'll never see me in there. I will never hit off a tee. I'll never hit off a guy throwing underhand. That's for little girls. And he said, when, when we are hitting on the field, I'll hit all day. I want to hit a live arm every day. But what information do I need? I figure every pitcher's got a fastball. Every 
Everyone's got a breaking ball. Everyone's got a change up. So you know what? I'm good. Wait. He goes, I don't need anything from you, Ace. I'm never going to ask you for a scout report. So here we are, Booney, the next night. Okay, we're in Minnesota. They bring in some guy, some lefty in the bullpen. It's the seventh inning. We're down a run. Now pitching number 77. I, I can't remember the guy's name. Latin pitcher comes in. And I'm watching him warm up because I'm, I'm hitting after junior. The guy's throwing 96, 97, nasty slider. And I look over at junior. He never went over to Alan Cockrell to get a scouting report. In fact, he's looking up at the front row talking to some little six-year-old kid, having a conversation with him as the guy jogs in. He throws his eight warm-up pitches, and then he hears, now batting number 24, Ken Griffey Jr. Okay, I'll see you later, kid. And he walks up to home plate. There's no way I just – he didn't – he didn't watch the guy throw one pitch, doesn't know who's pitching, doesn't know how fast he throws, didn't look at a scout report. He goes up and first pitch, he did his patented Ken Griffey Jr. take. Next pitch, upper deck home run to tie it. He came around, high five, and I'm going, man, like, did I just witness what I witnessed? And I'll, I'll, I'll finish with this, Booney. Myself and Junior are eating um, sushi one night in, Sac in San Francisco at Azuno's. And um, we had a glass of sake. We're having some sushi. It's a great night. And uh, Ichiro asked Junior, hey, Junior, do you think if you prepared like I did, you know, um, my workout regimen, my scouting reports, everything that I do, he goes, do you think you'd have maybe 800 home runs? And Junior goes, shoot, Ichiro. If I was a robot like you, showing up at 201, eating my dang seven itchy wings, eating my rice balls with plums in them, he's like, man, I'd be so jacked up. I'd probably have about 100 home runs. Man, you're a robot. And it was just so funny to see the difference. You know, you played with both those guys for a long time to see the level of high level of preparation on some and then just the God-given natural ability to, like Ken Griffey Jr., the greatest probably swing ever, but the, the, the ability that he had to just turn off all the noise and just go approach it like it was a wiffle ball game in the front yard of his house as like a 12-year-old little kid. And to do it without injury, probably the greatest to ever do it, um, just blew my mind. So did you ever have any, did you ever have any stories like that oh, with Ichiro I, or Junior? Ichi, you're right. Ichi would pre he'd prepare the rice balls. I, I got on the rice balls too. I thought there was something to it. So his <laughs> wife would, would make me rice balls as well. But Junior, <laughs> Junior Sween was my first piece of humble pie in the big leagues. Um, because I thought, you know, I got through the minor leagues pretty quick. I got to the big leagues. I thought I was a hot shot. And all of a sudden I'm, I'm sitting across from Junior, who's on his like third year in the big leagues, already been an all-star twice. And he's 21 years old. And we're the, we're the same age. We're the same age. And I'm going, I think I'm good. That's when I really realized what the greatness you're talking about is. He's, he's the most natural talent I've ever seen. He's the best player I've ever played with. And, yes, I, I, I remember Jay Buhner sitting me down when I first got to the big leagues and goes, you know, we're talking hitting and, and what this guy's got and what that guy's got. And, and we'd come to junior and he'd be like, Brett, you're going to realize this. He's different than the rest of us. <laughs> Don't even pay attention to him. And I mean, I'd be sitting in a team meeting or not a team meeting, but guys sitting around before a game and Edgar, I'd always go to Edgar when I was a young player. And I'd say, Poppy, what's this guy got tonight? We'd be going over. He's probably going to try to get you out with the break of all two strikes. He likes to do this, you know, yada, yada. And uh, Kenny'd walk by 
and I'd look at Kenny and I'd say, what do you think, Kenny? Give me something on this picture tonight. And he would just, like you said, he'd have his hat on backwards. He'd look at me. He goes, yeah. Booney, I just see ball, hit ball. And he would, <laughs> he would just keep going. And, and the rest of us would look around and Buna would look at me like I told you, don't even pay attention to him. He's different. He, <laughs> he truly was. I mean, I've, I've got I don't have enough time for the stories, but yeah, the, the, the things like you're talking about hitting the ball in the upper deck, it, he, he did it all the time. And you were amazed. And, and it was just and it was so aloof about it. You know, I think deep down when when the cameras weren't rolling and we weren't around, Junior prepared more than he lets on. But uh, yeah, he tr- he's truly the most the most talented guy I've ever played with and been around. Um, yeah, me too, Boney. And I'll, and I'll say this before we turn the page on Junior, he is definitely the best player I ever played with by far. But also the most humble humble superstar that I was able ever to share a, a locker room with, including when we would play in the All Star games. You know, we're playing against the best in the world, Boney, and and we're teammates with the best in the world, and we're being looked at as doing things that nobody else can do. But Junior was just always so humble. He never wanted to talk about himself. He always wanted to talk about Melissa and their three children. And um, he's just incredible. It was very, it was very refreshing to share a locker room with him and go, man, this is how Ken Griffey Junior acts. He's he loves his wife, loves his kids. He's out there, looks like he's playing wiffle ball out there, and he makes it look so easy. And just incredible um, sharing stories about the great Junior. Yeah, he, he is. He was, he was like it, the weird part about junior is I, you know, we all have father figures and guys that pass down information and, and knowledge from experience. And it's usually somebody older in our life. I remember that first year in the big leagues because I had a tough time. You know, I was just trying to show everybody that I proved everybody that I belonged here. And, and my first hundred, 120 at bats were rough. And, <laughs> and Kenny sitting there, you know, like I said, same age, we're peers. Yeah. But 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 it seemed like he was a ten year veteran, you know. And yep. and I remember on the side when nobody was looking, he'd pull mm-hmm. me aside mm-hmm. and have those fatherly talks. But I used to, pit, you know, I'd, I'd look at myself like this guy's the same age as me, and he's talking to me <laughs> like he's my dad. But he had that much more experience, and he was that much more ahead of us from a baseball yes, IQ standpoint at the same age. So it was incredible. Yep. I have some cool stuff from 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 early on in my career. Um, Swain, known as one of the nicest guys in the game. Uh, currently, you're a special advisor for the Kansas City Royals, correct? Yes, and, sir. And I, I wanted to touch on this real quick. Uh, yep. In this world today, and it's different, you know, iPhones, everything's on camera. You got you to gotta mind your P's and Q's. We've all yep. been absolutely uh, scolded verbally in, in, a, in a visiting stadium. You know, a lot of we've, we've got to let it roll off our back for the most part. You know, uh, guys yelling at you, you know, you, you kind of take it for what it is. This is a job. This comes with the territory. But as a special advisor, what advice do you give to the young kids today? How to handle that? Because it is a different media. You can't go anywhere without somebody recording, especially yeah. if you're a high profile player. Do you have any advice to these guys today? I saw, I saw a clip with Rendon recently. And uh, by the way, when he reached up into the crowd in Oakland, I did the same thing in about 2002, just wanted to scare the guys, you know, he's talking about yeah. my mom and maybe it was a rough night and I did the same thing. It didn't get caught on camera. Yeah. But no he cell did phones it. back then. Right. Um, 
advice to the young players today on how to handle it. Cause it is, everybody wants a piece of you. Everybody's today's society. Everybody's looking to, to maybe take something from you to get a reaction yeah. from you as a player. What's your advice to the younger players today? So a couple of quick things, Booney, I know we're wrapping things up, but number one, never say anything about Sue Boone. <laughs> that's that's Bob's beautiful wife of 50 plus and, and they and they wouldn't name her as Sue they just say your mom and you can fill in the rest <laughs> so number one never mess with Sue Boone uh number two um I was I was super blessed when I got done playing with the Royals uh and I retired in 2011 they named a an award organizational award named after me which is given to the player that best represents the team on and off the field so um, my role as an advisor is I meet with these guys and I share with them the importance of your legacy and not only representing the Kansas City Royals while you're playing from seven o'clock to 10 o'clock or one o'clock to four o'clock in a day game. But it's when you leave this clubhouse and there's 50 kids waiting in the parking lot, your job's not done yet. When you wake up the next morning and you go to breakfast at first watch in some little big league town or even a minor league town, maybe it's, um, the Cracker Barrel or Cracker Barrels or the Benihanas of the South, uh, the uh, Waffle House, <laughs> um, that you're you're representing the Kansas City Royals at that time. When you if you go out and have a beverage after a game at, and you're hanging out with your teammates, you're still a Kansas City Royal. And to make sure that you represent the Royals on and off the field, because if you don't, despite how well you play the game, your opportunities will will shrink and be limited. So. That's the way I do it. And I walk alongside these guys, Boney. And um, yeah, it's just, it, it's my, my way to get back. And hopefully when these guys get to the big leagues, that they're prepared emotionally um, to, when you do get booed at another stadium, that it's, it's just like water off your back. I know, speaking probably for you, Boney, when you go into Yankee Stadium and they announce your name and you get booed, it feels good. Because you're like, oh man, they know, right. they know it, that I'm like here to play. It's like they're cheering yeah. you. It, it's, they're cheering you. It, it's a compliment. The, the, the hard part, I don't, I don't know. I don't think you ever got booed at home. I had a I had a sports talk radio show host in Kansas City that made it his daily goal to just crucify me. I never listened to the garbage, but some of his cronies that would listen to him would come out and boo you. When you're booed at home, it hurts. But to have the humility to not respond to that, that's what separates the good men from the great. So just try my I guess my goal is was always to be rooted in humility. And the thing is, if they are booing me at home, I can always say they're booning me. That, 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 you know, that was my fallback. Hey, hey, hey Brett, they're booing you. They're saying boon. Always. Boom. They're always, yeah, always Boom. saying boon. A lot of people probably don't know this, Mike, uh, about our families. And, and we've got a weird way. We're intertwined. Let, let me set this up for the people out there listening to the Boom podcast. Uh, Mike Sweeney played for my father as, as, we, as we covered. In A ball and double A, my manager was Mike Sweeney's father-in-law, Jim Nettles, the famous Nettles brothers, uh, Jim and Craig Nettles. That's your father-in-law. He has a daughter named Shara, who when I was in A-ball in Peninsula was probably 12 or 13 years old. So fast forward, Mike's in the big leagues, I'm in the big leagues. This is the early 2000s. I haven't seen Shara since she's a little girl, basically. Yeah, that's right. And I'm coming out of the Kansas City Royals visiting locker room, and I'm going to the tunnel, I'm going to the bus. And this 
woman comes running up to me almost well no I, i'm almost like i really know you but i'm thinking <laughs> we're in the tunnel fans aren't allowed here it's just yeah. got to be somebody's family and she gives me a hug she goes it's shara I'm now married to Mike Sweeney. And I looked at her. You talk about a moment. And I go, oh, my goodness. I just remember her a few years back running around with, with dad, Jim, in Peninsula. Yes. In Peninsula. So bad girl that year. Ironically. It, uh, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And, and uh, so that's how we're intertwined. Um, pretty cool. Pretty cool. It's super cool. And then. Going back, even when, when I was in high school, you were maybe a year or two older than me, but I was so grateful to play with Aaron. We got to play Scout League together, and uh, Aaron became one of my good friends, and we played against each other in the minor leagues and the big leagues. And then your 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 amazing brother, Matt, uh, owns Boone Action Turf. He he did my whole turf property here in, in San Diego. So the Boone family and the Sweeney families have been connected for many years, and by the grace of God, we'll continue to be that way, Booney. Well, Michael, I appreciate you coming on, man. A lot of fun. Uh, what a great player, great family man, great guy. Uh, captain of the Kansas City Royals from 2003 to 2007. I mentioned it at the top five-time All-Star. 2015, uh, you got inducted to the Kansas City Hall of Fame. Pretty awesome. 297 for a career, 215 homers. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. And for all of you out there listening to Podcast. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Boom.